gonna, what's happened to my neighbor. I'm gonna, I'm, as a believer, I should be concerned with what's happening around me. So with this, from Leviticus, just as a, as a sentiment, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor, neighbor fairly. So yes, as believers, we should desire justice. So with this, how do we feel about when an injustice is carried out? How do we feel when we, when we hear or we see a headline about a, a child being abused? How do we, how do we feel about uh, someone being murdered? What is our emotional response to this? How do we, when we see um, downtown there's been a murder of an innocent person just walking, wanting to do, not interacting, and, and he, this person was murdered. How do we, what is the emotion that we feel? Anger. Yes. We feel anger. And it, it, anger at this point is the right response. Anger is the God-given emotional response to seeing injustice. So when we see injustice, that anger is a true and righteous thing. However, Christians still struggle with remaining sin. All this means is that the anger you feel when people disagree with you, with your political uh, positions, uh, your anger might be the right response, that they're upholding something that, that would be wicked. However, we need to remember God's word on this. We must be, in, uh, from James 1, slow to become angry because human anger does not... Produce the righteousness that God desires. Yes, anger has its has its righteous place, but we are to be slow to anger. Why? Why? Because our judgments can be clouded. So, and and I would say, this characterizes all political disagreements and interactions throughout all of history. I see what the other opposing is saying, I'm angry with them, and thus we need to come to the issue about how we deal with this as believers in Christ. So with this, let me quote from a book that I'll make mention as a reference later on. Are you convinced about your own political opinions? If so, that's be it may be that's because you are walking in the Spirit you love your neighbor as yourself, and you, are rightly, and you have rightly formed judgments about the issues of the day. That may be one reason. Then again, it might also be because you are following a, the self-justifying script of every other political party and every other tribe and nation throughout the history of the world. This is from, uh, again, I'll make mention of this book, and it's something that uh, I believe the church has ordered a number of copies, and I'll, make, I'll, I'll come back to the reference at the end of, the, of this particular session. Too often, anger is weaponized to destroy those who oppose our positions or other positions. We can then be very self-serving in our anger, which brings me again to this issue. So, uh, sorry, there's the quote right there. Uh, from, from the book. 
So we tend to be human beings that self-justify and be very self-righteous. My position's the correct one, your position's the incorrect one, and I'm going to go at you. That can be a tendency that we have. Another thing that creates uh, the issue of divisiveness, not only that, that we honestly have a legitimate reason to care about justice, and because we fall and we tend to, to be self-righteous and self-justifying, but also because political judgments require wisdom. So there are scriptures that we can apply directly to questions about a society. There are, there are scriptures that we can apply directly uh, to questions about um, culture or politics. For example, uh, murders will not inherit the kingdom of God. Life. We can, we can say that's a direct line, that's, a, a, that's a, a, a scripture that is very easy to say, yes, in fact, murder is wrong. So that would be um, such things such as murder, theft, then there's a, a, an issue of the indirect application of Scripture. There's a distance between our biblical principles and the application of those principles to society. Wisdom is required to understand the nuance and the, complex, uh, the complexity of what's going on in order to directly apply those Scriptures. For example, how do we address theft? How do we, as a society, if we... Now, let's think of society. We have you and your two neighbors on either side of you. You have a small society. If you were on a small island, you would have to create some sort of agreement. All right, where the three of us are, are living together, we need to say that we shouldn't steal each other's cows, we can't kill each other's children. Congratulations, you've formed some form of, of a very uh, basic level of, of civil government. So what about more nuanced questions like my tax rates? Uh, border and immigration, immigration policy. How about showing compassion to asylum seekers? What do we do with that? These topics are not a straight line in applying scripture in this situation. So in one scenario, we have very clear, do not, you, you shall not murder, you shall not steal. Those are very clear. With other issues, it's more nuanced. You may have multiple thoughts that you're thinking through, multiple uh, topics, uh, uh, situations that are coming up, and verses that may ha that have relevance or tertiary relevance, and it's requiring wisdom to come to from your starting point to your conclusion. So, in this scenario, differences will arise. So, the issue, a difficulty with this is that you and I are not Solomon. Nor are you and I Jesus. We do not have perfect wisdom to derive at these points. It requires humility on our part. So seeing this complication, this brings us to the next need. What is the gospel, how does the gospel lead us when we have something that's not entirely clear? It brings us back to, next to the gospel. And, what, and by way of the gospel, let me summarize this. It's not only, it's the gospel and its broader context of what's assumed. So first, there is a statement about the gospel about God. He, as the creator of all, God is both the source 
and fulfillment of life. Okay, if we're telling someone that Jesus died for them, that's assuming something. God created them, and there's a purpose to life. And God is that purpose for life. Next, with creation, all people were created, that is, intentionally designed. Intentionally designed by God in his image for the purpose of having and enjoying fellowship with him and his creation. Sin. Sin plunged all people into the lie and corruption that we do not need God. That he is not trustworthy, that his words are not good, that we can create our own gods and we can create our own ultimate purpose. This separation from the God of life brings guilt, corruption, and is spiritual death. It's separation. God's work and grace, God provided redemption through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. In grace, the Holy Spirit reveals to sinners their need. In grace, he applies this redemption. He justifies, adopts, regenerates. God removes the heart of stone and gives a living heart that seeks to understand, to love, and obey him. A heart being shaped by grateful humility for God's intervention and grace. Praise God for that. That's, that was God's work. Our response in grace, God calls all to place their faith and confidence in Christ's work to put them in right standing with him. If I have confidence in someone's message and he tells me to do A and not B, confidence in Christ's revelation is simply repentance. To see all of his self-revelation, that is the Bible, as good, good because it is good for us by its nature and by our nature. It is therefore trustworthy and worthy of being followed. God is worthy of all of our attention and our affection. Destiny, those redeemed will continue to grow in and enjoy fellowship with God, life without end, for eternity. Hallelujah. So when I say the gospel has bearing, this has bearing when we come to one another. And I assume if we had a church of three families that there would be three different political opinions. I think it's fair to say that we have differing political opinions in this group right now and in, in, in the larger, um, larger group with, with uh, GCF. So, firstly, once we've, uh, we, once we've asserted what the gospel is, the first response is not toward man. The first response is, once I see this beautiful message of the gospel, what is my response to God? Again, that's the primary thing that we need to be coming to. If we miss this point, then the other points will fall. The gospel motivates us to expand our knowledge in God. So we are always to pursue a greater understanding of God through the scriptures and relationships with other believers. Why would we do this? If you see something amazingly desirable and beautiful, if you've only lived in gray and then someone gave you those colorblind uh, glasses and you saw a glimpse of a sunrise, you would not look over to the black and white TV. You would sprint to the beauty of that sunrise that you had never seen those colors before in your life. Same with this. If we understand the beauty of Christ, that should compel us. 
that should compel us to say, I need to know more about the beauty of this God. This means in part vigorously pursuing a profound and intellectual understanding of scriptural issues. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the, be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grow in grace and knowledge. We don't, we don't grow in knowledge unless we pursue knowledge. That means reading the word. That means reading books. That means uh, studying the, the, the sermons. So how do we come to understand these, these truths? Now, when we think of where, where God says, pursue knowledge of me, if for any other person, if I were to say this to all of you, all of you, pursue knowledge of Dale Lavoie, that would be very egotistical. It would be crazy. Is this, is this command when we see love the Lord your God with all your mind? Is this an arbitrary, now, is this an arbitrary flex of an egomaniacal God? Because that's, that's some of the wrestling points in, that I've had with conversations and certainly myself previously. This is not an arbitrary command. This is to call us what we were designed for. We were designed for unity with God. God created us to have fellowship with him, and that means that to pursue him is to pursue what we were designed for. So if we have a knowledge of God, this will also motivate us to expand our affection for God. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ uh, to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Notice how he, he talks about the knowledge of God to those to whom it is revealed. Pursuing truth is its own reward. We, created, we were created and designed by God to grow and thrive in context of truth and following after that truth. Christ is truth and the life. In apprehending Christ, we, we gain truth and life in abundance. Why should we seek a greater understanding of Christ? Because he is the knowledge, Christ is the fragrance of life. Fragrance, something beautiful, something desirable. Viewing the gospel should stir in us a curiosity for more. If you were a four-year-old and I gave you a piece of candy, and I said, there's more candy, you just need to look for it. Here's one piece. As a four-year-old, you'd pick up that piece of candy and you would be curious for more because you want more. May God give us that hunger to want more. A true knowledge of God reveals itself in an affection for him. Note this. <clears throat> a true intellectual understanding, pardon me for them. I'll try to do this next time. A true intellectual understanding of Christ leads to wonder, worship, devotion, affection, humility, confidence, and gratitude. If someone's intellectual grasp of theology in the Bible doesn't go into this direction but instead shows up in arrogance, then they are doing theology wrong. 
a fundamental failure is taking place. If you're like me, I've had, I have had times in the, in the past where I've been very arrogant about my theological positions, and I still struggle with arrogance with my theological positions. If you're like me, repent and ask God for a sense of wonder and humility. So this brings us to our next. So the gospel motivates us for knowledge of God, for affection for God. Now how does that translate to our interaction with others? This translates to a sense of that the gospel teaches us humility. <clears throat> for those who see anything different in, uh, for, for, for who sees anything different in you, what do you have that you did not receive? Then if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Brothers, this is not simply talking about non-Christians. This is talking about everybody. If, I, if, if he gives me an appreciation for any truth, it's because God's given it to me. If he's given you an appreciation for truth, it's because God has revealed it. Where is my pride in this? It should be slain. It is the Holy Spirit that is the one who illuminates people to truth. Therefore, we are to be faithful, gentle, and patient when discussing areas of difference. How does this really impact our... Um, now, how does this reality impact our time with other people? What does this humility produce? This, this gospel humility leads to love. But those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably, peaceably with all. So the gospel... If you apprehend it, if you understand it, this will lead to a sense of humility in interacting with others. It will also lead to a recognition of how God has loved you, and it will be an outpouring for you to love others accordingly. The gospel does not resolve our wisdom-based political judgments. Remember getting back to that zigzag line? Okay, we're talking about humility. We're talking about love, but the gospel does not resolve these issues. It does, help, uh, it does help us to love and to be patient with one another through these disagreements. Whenever we walk in the Spirit, we become able to, to seek out the plank in our own eye first, not just the speck in our neighbor's eye, and to fight for what's right, not to justify ourselves, but for the sake of love. So this has some impact upon perhaps some social media um, habits. Um, has anybody ever gone on to social media to own the fill in the blank? I'm gonna own that person. I'm gonna troll this person. What does love and humility speak to this? <clears throat> so this, and I already alluded to it before, this gospel humility, this gospel love, should produce in us a curiosity. And let me propose this. If I love you, that doesn't show itself by being completely disinterested in you as a person. I love my wife. And daily I am growing to know her more and more. It takes curiosity. So what does that mean for us as believers? It means 
to ask questions, be present with them, listen, seek to understand. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Slow, why? I want to be quick. What does quick to hear entail? I need to learn more about you. Slow to speak and slow to anger, why? Because I need to check myself more and more to make sure that I'm not running my own agenda right over you. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let, of each, you, let each, each of you look not only to his own, but to the interests of others. Again, I'm going through a lot of different verses here, but the theme is that we are to place others as more important. What does that mean? If I place you as more important, I'm going to be curious about you. I want to learn about you. I want to understand what's, what your challenges are, what your issues are, and, and help understand. So we must ask the questions, uh, we must ask questions about others. Pay attention quietly. And I'm speaking to myself here. Uh, I'm preaching, this is, this is to myself as well. Pay attention, seek to understand, and seek to understand for their good. For, uh, <clears throat> for their good in context of their standing before God. So we seek dialogue, th we seek to have dialogue and understand one another in disagreement. In this way, curiosity is a display of love. Now, let me ask the question. Does this humility and love lead to insecurity in my positions and compromise? Any thoughts? <clears throat> does <clears throat> does humility and leave uh, sorry does humility and love does that mean that we need to have insecurity and compromise no simon peter replied you are the christ the son of the living god and jesus answered him blessed are you simon barjona for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven and i tell you you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, notice here, what is the rock? It is, it is Peter's profession that he is the Christ. Nothing's being built on Peter. It's being built on Christ. Christ is the center of all the scriptures. So how is this relevant to our, our, our question about confidence? We can be confident that Christ is building his church well, and he is well pleased. We can be confident that Christ is attending his flock perfectly. We can be confident that the Holy Spirit gives sight, understanding, and illumination. That God is sovereign, that God is wise, that God is trustworthy. So there is confidence. I may not have all the answers to all the political questions, 
but praise God, I have a God who is wise and God, he is wise and good and sovereign and therefore trustworthy and therefore worthy of my adoration and affection. So now that was kind of general to all others. How specifically does this address the issue of us as believers? Because again, I know there's different, there are, as many people as are in here, there's different political positions on some position. The gospel calls us to, to unity. And again, so important here. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. More important than my tertiary view of tax brackets or immigration is that there's a bond of unity with all of you. Now, what's the backdrop on this? The backdrop is... We were born enemies. I was born wanting to be my own king. And every one of you were not on board. You didn't want me to be the king. Hold it. You all were my declared enemies. I worship me. You need to worship me too. Hold it. You're not, you're not on board with that? You are my enemies then. It is, it, is, it is our born nature to harbor hostilities and divide. Each of us wants to rule. That's the simple understanding of who we are in our born nature. What is it that brings us out of this? And after this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne, before the Lamb, Revelation 7. Christ brings people out of every tribe, out of every creed, out of every background. It's no longer relevant to you if I have a French background, if I have flat feet. It's no longer relevant to you if I'm white, if I'm male. All these things are irrelevant to you. We are brought together by Christ. That is our identity. And we talk, there's so much talk about race. There's so much talk about different nationalities. We, as believers, we are a part of a nation without boundaries. As a Christian, I don't say, this is my Christian boundary right here. It doesn't exist. It is throughout the world. And this, listen to this from 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race. Let's stop there. Who's he talking about? The redeemed a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people called for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, let me back up. Exodus 19, Mount Sinai. And <clears throat> time is running away from me, so, but Mount Sinai and... God proclaimed through Moses, if, if, if 
If you do these things, you will be to me a special nation. Go back and read it. Exodus 19. If. That's a, that's a big word from Exodus. But here, those in Christ, those in the new covenant, are a holy nation. Us together. Praise God for that. Members of every nation race will learn to live as, as fellow citizens of Christ's kingdom. Again, a new nation, a new race. With the local church is where we, we, we who were once enemies... This is where we beat our swords into plowshares. This is where we take our spears and make them into pruning hooks. We are laboring with one another as brothers. It is here where race, affluence, education, any other dividing line, and say the, the homeless and the senator, we all in the gospel unite. Pursuing, <clears throat> pursuing unity also requires us to prioritize our positions. I chart. There are certain things as GCF that are centrally important. The virgin birth, the gospel, sin, creation. Those things as believers are central. There are other things that can be convictions or opinions the word opinion is there in the scripture. There are various things that could be opinions that I might be all mill, post mill. I might be at one of these positions, but that's not defining my unity. It is who I am in Jesus Christ that defines our unity. There are essential issues and there are areas where disagreement is fine. There are areas where disagreement is fine. Now, is this to say that there are no political positions that we should hold? No, but we need to hold them with grace, humility, and understanding. In a healthy church is where we have unity in essentials. We will have members who are not uniform in their politics. What unites us is Jesus Christ, not a political party. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Perhaps this is Augustine. I'm not entirely sure. Couldn't find the attribution. This is not to say that political positions are unimportant or to be abandoned. It is to say that we listen with humility and with love. That is, when you listen, you listen with charity. So it call, the gospel calls us to unity. It calls us to charity. The gospel does not automatically resolve all of our jagged line political judgments in the here and now. It helps us to love and forbear with one another amid differences in, in, of wisdom-based judgments. It creates unity and diversity, not uniformity. There will be diversity in GCF of political opinions. There is unity and amid, diverse, uh, amid diversity, not uniformity. Here, then, is the big irony. Even if your church is healthy... Your members will likely not be entirely uniform in their politics. Your members might even feel some measure of political tension. What unites them is Jesus and not partisan politics. So, John, 3, John 13, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. 
if they agree with you politically. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you're pretty sanctimonious about your positions. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. What does that love drive us to do? It drives us to humility. It drives us to love, to curiosity. It drives us away from ourself. Now let's briefly talk about the gospel and our response to non-Christians. Something that's very sticky in this particular uh, cultural uh, time that we live in. So what is the gospel priority? What is the guiding political what is the guiding principle that guides us when we interact with non-believers? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The greatest need for your neighbor is not to become moralistic. Well, so long as you agree with me on this political issue that's on the ballot, then we're good neighbors. Is that the greatest need? Their greatest need is to see their need for Jesus Christ. Those of you who are bold with your political positions, I'm, gra I'm grateful for, for, for boldness in this regard. Are you equally as bold? Are you more bold for the gospel? Now, in addition to the gospel priority, we are salt to the world. So, there is their need for the gospel, but there's also the issue of what does it look like to love my neighbor? It means to understand how God made the world, to understand this impacts ethical, cultural, and political issues. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to, you ought to answer each person. We speak to non-Christians about cultural and political issues because we are interested in loving our neighbor, not about how to own them, not to how, how to put them down. We want to spare them from the consequences of a really bad idea. Oh, I have an idea. 95% um, tax rate. Or let's, you know, kill all dogs. That's, that's a really bad idea. If my neighbor says that, you know, I have, you know my neighbor says, um, I'm, I have too much... I have too many things going on. I need to just kind of kill all of my five children. That's a really bad idea. What does love look like? I interact with them about this. That's a bad idea. You're killing a person. So in, we, in how we speak, Nancy Piercy, I'll be referring to her. Uh, she has many works that are very worth your time. Christians should not speak out, or sorry, Christians should speak out on moral issues not because they feel offended or because 
their cherished beliefs are threatened, but because they have compassion for those who are trapped by destructive ideas. A really salient thing to keep in mind is even uh, earlier we're talking about gender issues. Love should constrain, love should direct us on this issue. So, in conclusion, we talked about the gospel in our response to God, gospel in our response to others, our response to us as believers, our response to non-Christians. Um, any thoughts or questions? Thank you. Amen. Everybody hear that? Probably not over here. Um, I don't know if I could recap. I don't know if I could get everything you just said, but the real issue is faith and love in our interaction with others. Any other thoughts or questions? So running out of time here. This is the book that I mentioned. Uh, it's available, but also the, the church has ordered a number of these. Again, if you skip the rest of the series, I'm good with that. Um, I owe a lot of my thought and content to this. It's just a tiny booklet. It would take you probably an hour to read. It's well worth the time and the meditation. Um, again, there's a QR code if you want to order it individually, but it, it's coming up to the church. Um, and <clears throat> so next week we'll start on the topic about how we come to our political positions. Now remember, I, I have for next week worldview. Why would I start there? Worldview is how we think about things and it is how we understand the, the, the world to exist, the world to, to be. There are implications if we, without thinking, take on a, a worldview of someone else. And I mentioned it before, um, if we think that, that people are just an accumulation of cells and atoms with no inherent dignity, then that will drive political decisions that we come to. So that will start next week. Now, a parting thought. Remember that um, I, I mentioned that the, the primary, the first point of, of this series, that we should honor and rejoice in God as our maker, sustainer, judge, and, and as redeemer, and in the good news of his kingdom. Why do I say rejoice? Why do I say rejoice? Sometimes we hear the word honor and we think, uh, we think of an removed, uninterested, distant power. Well, I have to bend the knee, I have to honor. We tend, sometimes in my own thinking, I kind of become a deist. Uh, honor, uh, bow the knee. If we think like that, we're not thinking biblically. If we, if we honor Christ, that means we're rejoicing in what he's provided. If we rejoice in Christ, that means we honor him. So 
let me ask for some questions here in, the, in our closing moment. Do you see God as distant and, and uninterested in you? Maybe not entirely, but maybe emotionally in your heart. Sometimes you think, God, are you there? Are you interested? Do you feel that God is lacking power, goodness, or wisdom? Does Jesus Christ seem irrelevant to you in your day-to-day life or struggles or challenges? Does your mind answer yes, even somewhat to any of these? Well, then so do I. I struggle with those. This is the Christian struggle. Truly understanding God in the mind and heart shows itself through both honor and rejoicing. Rejoicing is honoring him, honoring him, uh, honoring is having a heart that rejoices in him. It's two sides of the same coin for the believer. Let me end with this. Brothers and sisters, I pray that as an assembly, as individuals, that I and, and us together would cry out to God that we would honor him through rejoicing in what he's given. Thank you. Let's pray. Oh, oh I'm sorry. One qu- questions. Thank you. Yeah, so the media news will state Christians accept same-sex marriage, abortion, et cetera, et cetera. How do I not be angry at these so-called Christians uh, not speaking biblically? A fantastic question, and um, I will pick that up uh, throughout the rest of the series. Thank you for whoever posted that. We're out of time. Our God, we thank you that you have seen fit to create. We thank you that you have seen fit to redeem. We thank you that you have seen fit to assemble us together from all tribes and nations into one nation, one family, that you have adopted us as sons. God, let this precious truth guide us as we consider political issues. We thank you for your, uh, your illumination. We are dependent upon you for that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.